One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. This is The Real Story from the BBC World Service with me, Celia Hatton. Over the next hour, we'll be asking the question, is social media killing elections? The most notorious recent example is, of course, Russian interference in the election that brought Donald Trump to power in the U.S. in 2016, for which the evidence is overwhelming. But in this program, we want to look at other elections around the world, from Nigeria to India. And let's start our program with one that's just happened, one particularly colourful, particularly divisive election. It took place in Indonesia. And to help set the scene, I caught up with the BBC's longtime Indonesia editor, Rebecca Henschke. Social media is huge in Indonesia. And and it's not just young people who are using it. It's it's housewives, it's professionals, it's your grandma. Our office lady was the biggest user of of social media during the campaign and was always sending us the latest that she was getting from all these wonderful, reliable sources. You're you're saying reliable and putting that in finger quotation marks. That's right, (laughs) because social media is so untamed, isn't it? And in Indonesia, so we're basically, Jakarta is one of the Twitter capitals in the world. People use it like a chat app. So they'll reply to comments, very personal stuff is put on Twitter. And then you've got Facebook. And now increasingly, of course, it's all about Instagram and Instagram stories. So social media is huge in Indonesia and it was huge in this election. Okay. And it was played out in social media. Do you have any any examples? It was played out on social media and not just like played out as in campaign videos. What really happened was fake news, fake campaigns on social media. So there's one here uh, that shows that President Joko Widodo is actually Chinese, that his parents were Chinese and that he was the descendant of Chinese. And, and, that's, this is, and that's untrue. It's untrue. He's not. He's Javanese. Maybe he has some heritage, but nobody knows. Okay, but I, see you're, I see you're swiping through your phone. It looks like you've got a lot of examples. Yeah, there are a lot of examples. So a lot of it was around the Chinese influence because President Joko Widodo is doing a lot of deals with China to build infrastructure. From the Prabowo side, it was all about his human rights allegations. There's a the, the fact that he had a huge debt, which he didn't. And then this wonderful one here that I'll, I'll, that I'll show you that's a Facebook post that went viral that shows uh, Prabowo's image in, in in a kind of White House setting. It's his it's his a portrait that's being hung on a wall. It's like a kind of American figure. It looks of like policy. McCain to me, maybe. But but the the U.S. presidential flag is also behind it. Look. It's very confusing. It's obviously yeah. a faked image. Well, that's right. Yeah. But then you look at it and that was shared like, you know, like almost 500 times. It's got a lot of comments. So these sort of things were were floating around. Did anybody try to stop this? They did. Both teams intensively tried to stop it, but they were also intensively involved in it. I think it's important to say that this is not just rogue people making up things. A lot of investigations that you know we've got involved in and also other media showed that both teams set up basically fake news teams. Is there any proof that all of this content really affected the outcome? I think it's really hard to tell, but there were some pretty extraordinary surveys that showed at one point there was, 
yeah, around 40% of people who were asked questions thought that Jokowi was a Christian, he's a Muslim, and that he was a communist. So it was affecting people's ideas. And most people who supported President Joko Dodo did think that Prabowo was accused and convicted of human rights abuses. Well, in fact, he's never been convicted. So I think it did really affect. But I think what happened is, like often happens, people stayed within their social media bubble. But what I think that we can take from this election, though, is that it definitely made Indonesia a more divisive society. And so the the impact of this election is much bigger than who won. Oh, there you have it. Intrigue surrounding the Indonesian election. But this country isn't an isolated case. As I said before, social media is affecting modern elections all over the world, from the big presidential campaigns like we've heard about in Indonesia to local contests. Later in the program, you'll hear about one case from the midterm elections in the United States when campaign workers had to learn how to deal with threats posed by social media, even making honeypot traps to trick potential hackers. But is this all a bit too alarmist? Social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter can make political candidates more accountable too, among other things. Few countries will want to shut down their social media platforms entirely. We'll examine solutions too. But for now, let me introduce our guest this hour. Jamie Bartlett is a technology author and documentary maker. His latest book is called The People vs. Tech. He joins us from our Edinburgh studio. Samantha Bradshaw is a researcher at the Oxford Internet Institute, and Nick Cheeseman is a professor of democracy and international development at the University of Birmingham and the author of Democracy in Africa and How to Rig an Election. He spends a lot of time in Africa but happens to be in Oxford today, from where both he and Samantha join us. Let's start by asking each of you, is it still possible to hold an election that isn't subject to misinformation via social media anymore? Jamie Bartlett, let's start with you. No, it's not possible. Um, I think the task is for governments to try to minimise the effect of it. You could say it's always been the case. We've always had misinformation of some sort or another. The difference now, of course, is that I think it's far easier to do. It's far easier to spread. In some ways, the design of social media platforms encourage that. And it's far easier to do internationally from countries outside the ones in which you're voting. And I think... If I were to look at this sort of across the world, what I think is happening with all of this is not necessarily that an election is won or lost because of these sorts of techniques, but trust that people have in elections is being undermined because it's always now going to be easy for whoever loses to blame the winning side for having cheated somehow. Samantha Bradshaw, let's turn to you. Do do you agree with what Jamie said? Is it always possible to question an election now in the age of social media? I certainly agree with Jamie. I think that social media has changed the scope, the scale, and the the precision of disinformation, of rumors, of conspiracy theories, of hate speech, of all these bad forms and low quality forms of information that we're seeing being shared on social media. I think that, you know, when it comes to every communication technology, whether it be the radio, print, TV, these things have always existed. But because social media 
for example, is built on business models that collect all of our information and tailor certain messages to us based on our interest. That creates all these new challenges around micro-targeting particular messages that already appeal to particular individuals. We also have the question around algorithms and how these black box algorithms determine what kinds of information we see with very little transparency around how they actually make those decisions and what users are seeing what kinds of content when, how diverse is this information, is it actually factual information, is it useful to creating a productive democracy. Nick Cheeseman, let's turn to you. Is it still possible to hold an election that isn't subject to misinformation via social media? I agree with what people have said before. I think we used to put a fake story in the newspaper, then we'd put it on radio, then we'd use block SMS to send it to thousands of people, now we put it out on WhatsApp. And I think we need to think quite carefully about what does WhatsApp change about that process. It's probably not the story, you know, stories about candidates being fake or giving out money when they didn't or giving up the race when they haven't have always been with us. In a sense, what WhatsApp has done is it's democratised that. It's put that capacity in the hands of far more people, including ordinary citizens, including opposition parties. And that's a problem because it's increased the spread of fake news and misinformation. But it's perhaps also equalised the balance of power between the ruling party, opposition and civil society groups. And whilst the spread of misinformation might be a very bad thing for society, that balancing up might in some ways be a good thing for democracy. So I don't think the story is all bad here. The other thing we should, of course, say is that often people are using WhatsApp and social media platforms as ways to check against election rigging. The Nigerian Electoral Commission, for example, uses WhatsApp to coordinate its anti-election rigging strategies. So as it were, in a way, this is a double-edged sword. Everything that's kind of bad about social media also has a flip side that's positive. And the trick for us is how do we manage the bad without getting rid of the good? Let's look at the challenges a little bit more. So we've all heard concerns about the spread of fake news or junk news, as some prefer to call it. The use of bots, that's another problem. That's the use of automated servers that can do all sorts of things from generating messages that are spread on social media. Uh, Bots can also increase fake likes, shares and views. What do you think has really changed now around elections, though? What are voters encountering now that they wouldn't have faced 20 years ago? Samantha Bradshaw, let's start with you. So when it comes to social media, um, as you mentioned, there's a new way to sort of automate messages to voters online. And this is often done by creating fake accounts, whether they be on Twitter, on Facebook, on WhatsApp. Um, And they'll, using simple computer scripts, they might like, share, retweet, interact, and engage with real people online. And this serves to amplify certain messages, certain ideas, certain movements, and give it this false sense of popularity or relevance in the political debate, the political discussion. So we've seen lots of messages from far-right groups, for example, gain significant amount of traction because they make use of these techniques, of these fake automated bot accounts to give a little bit more popularity and momentum around their ideas and their agenda. And it can uh, push those ideas much more into the mainstream conversations, unlike in the past. 
in elections in the united states, for example, we've looked at the amount of automation that's uh, been happening in conversations leading up to the 2016 presidential elections. Um, we find that, you know, the majority of these automated accounts tend to push what we call junk news stories to voters. It's an umbrella term that we use to describe all kinds of low quality information, whether that be conspiratorial, hyperpartisan uh, content, or, you know, the traditional, more true form of fake news, where the stories are actually fake or doctored in some kind of way. And we see these accounts pushing them, these stories, so much that if you look at the Twitter ecosystem as a whole, people were receiving about a one-to-one ratio of professionally produced news to junk news online. And this was actually concentrated in the swing states. So if you took a look geographically, uh, swing states actually had a much higher proportion of junk news being shared than the uncontested states. Nick Cheeseman, what stands out for you as the, the, the single thing that's changed the most in the past 20 years? I think really the volume of information available to voters. You know, if you think about a context in which perhaps uh, people in a rural area in sub-Saharan Africa might have had really radio and then maybe radio and newspaper. Now many of those people will be on WhatsApp and they'll be getting hundreds of messages a day for multiple political parties and multiple civil society groups. That opening up of the space is really phenomenal. To some extent, that's liberating because, of course, all of a sudden you have different sources of information you have never have had before. But it poses voters with a question that they've never necessarily had to answer in this way, which is which of these pieces of information are true and which aren't. And one of the things that we find is the way they arbitrate between is often, you know, where is it coming from? So Twitter is often a bit more suspect because people don't necessarily know where the message is coming from. WhatsApp is often seen as being a bit more trustworthy because it's more intimate. The people you're with uh, in a WhatsApp group are often people you know. They might be family friends. They might be church members. They might belong to your alumni network from university. And that gives sort of slightly added credence. But I do think one thing that we need to keep in mind is whether or not voters are sort of savvy about the WhatsApp uh, messages and the Twitter messages they get or not. Exactly. Is this a false perception, this idea that information you might receive on WhatsApp is more trustworthy than information you might see posted onto Twitter? Well, interestingly, we did a survey in Kenya before the 2017 elections, and there was a lot of information around that election about the role played by Cambridge Analytica, a lot of scandals and discussion about whether or not big data and the manipulation of fake news is playing a role. So we asked Kenyans, you know, do you use WhatsApp? Quite a lot of people said yes, especially in urban areas. But when we said to them, what's the most important source of news for you? Social media was right down there at the bottom. It was still traditional newspapers and radio. So we get a quite complex story here. On the one hand, we have a fairly strong sense that WhatsApp is changing the informational picture and that people may be influenced even by stories that they know to be false. At the same time, Kenyans are telling us that they know that this information is not necessarily legitimate and they don't necessarily trust it as much as they do other kinds of information. So what I don't think we should be thinking here is that these are kind of easily fooled people who are receiving any old message and believing it. In fact, what almost everybody we've met who are kind of, you might call them propaganda entrepreneurs in Nigeria, they call themselves propaganda secretaries, tell us is that the fake news story only works if at least half of it is true. 
So you have to start with a truth. The candidate is known to have done something. And then you extend that thing that they did that is probably unpopular to lots of other instances that they didn't do it. And the fake is the extending the one example to many examples. And that's the stories that tend to go really viral because people perceive them to be true. The WhatsApp example is an interesting one, the spread of fake news on WhatsApp. So the blame is shared a little bit. Jamie Bartlett, who do you think is really behind the malicious use of social media? We also have Russia's often blamed, but is this accurate? Oh, I mean, I, see, I, this is where I think Nick's right about volume of information being important, because I, I don't think you really need to blame anyone. It's just a way in which the news ecosystem has completely transformed. And I think fake news as a term is sometimes misused itself and it's not actually as important as some people say but when you're overwhelmed with huge amounts of information and that is definitely a big change from 20 years ago you now are able to sort of personalize it to yourself to your own interests to your own biases to your own concerns in a way that you just weren't able to do 20 years ago yes you could say the conservatives always read a right-wing paper and the liberals a left-wing paper and so on but not to the degree that you can personalise information around a single subject or a single candidate and create a sort of filter bubble all of your own. And that can be made up of true news. You can surround yourself with perfectly accurate information, but it's very one-sided and skewed and it kind of pushes you in a more extreme direction. And when you look at it that way, I think it's, it's, it's that difficulty that we have processing the volume of information we have now that is more important than Russian interference or bots doing X, Y and Z. But can I add one other thing here? Because I'm glad you said 20 years ago, because 20 years ago was the first time I ever got to vote. And if you'd have told me 20 years ago that uh, 20 years later, elections would be won and lost on a social media platform where political parties had been able to build up profiles on individuals based on hundreds of thousands of data points that had been collected through all sorts of different means. I mean, it would have sounded like science fiction. I think this personalisation of targeting and how, think, 20 years from now that it's going to be done through your smart fridge and your smart car and your smart TV and we'll have hugely more amounts of data to do this. This is changing how elections are understood by political parties. It's increasingly a game of trying to isolate individuals to the smallest sort of smallest group possible and then bombard them with things that they care about. And this is only going to get worse and more intense. And to me, that is that's it's sort of juxtaposed to how an election in an ideal world is supposed to be run. OK, before we go much further, I should say that our team asked representatives from Facebook, Instagram, which is owned by Facebook and Twitter to come on the programme, but all declined. But we've just looked at some of the problems caused by social media platforms like the ones I've just named. But let's balance things out a bit. Surely these platforms provide some benefits as well. That's a question we put to Idayat Hassan. She's a senior program officer at the Centre for Democracy and Development, West Africa, based in the Nigerian capital, Abuja. Nigeria had a general election in February, in which WhatsApp in particular played a large part. She's also been working on a WhatsApp-funded project to explore how social media affected the election process. It's affected elections both positively and negatively. In terms of positive, it's very cheap, And it's a mobilization tool that has been effectively utilized by the election management body. During the voter registration exercise, you have WhatsApp message being sent. 
you have Twitter engagement, Facebook engagement, where you can report if your card is missing, if you have challenges in terms of registering, and where you can also have information. Voter education messages are circulated online. Even our election observation is arranged around the social media platform where we use WhatsApp to get information from observers on the field. And we also use WhatsApp as a meeting point where we can train observers. We are able to reach more people because we stream live our events on Facebook, Twitter, beyond the people who are in the hall. But importantly, politicians have also been able to work on social media to divide the country along religious and ethnic lines and also to disenfranchise some section of the country from voting by promoting voter apathy. Uh, that was Idiot Hassan. Nick Cheesman, do you agree with her point about the use of WhatsApp in particular being being a good thing in some ways for voters as, as working as sort of a meeting point? Absolutely. The project that we're doing with Idiot has revealed many, many positives. And, you know, beyond the positives she mentioned, which are about the way you can use it to organize voter registration and elections, I think there's another broader point, which is that many opposition party leaders said to us, you know, before when the government put out a fake news story or dismissed us or branded us as being irresponsible or criminal, we just had to take it. Now we have people who are ready on WhatsApp to put out a response within an hour, pushing a counter message through our own networks. I think what comes out there then is a really important question about are people on multiple WhatsApp groups and and in Facebook and Twitter networks, in which case they're likely to get both the fake news story and the debunking story and can make up their mind? Or, as we've talked about already, are they actually siloed into echo chambers and they're only getting one side of the story and not the debunking message? And the question then, I think, and I don't think we have enough research to tell us the answer to this, is how does that balance out? you know, on an individual's decision on whether or not to vote, on who to vote for, and so on. But on a very basic level, if voters are getting perhaps information that's a bit contradictory, information from both sides of a campaign, doesn't social media at some point simply allow voters to directly address politicians who are running in a particular election? Samantha Bradshaw, what do you think? I think you're right. And I think social media does bring politicians a lot closer to their constituents because you can now interact with them on a much more personal level through Facebook groups that they create and organize through um, or through Twitter, where there is much more of a public persona around the politician. So it's definitely brought users much closer to their representatives. Jamie Bartlett, do you agree with that? I, I, I certainly couldn't deny And there's plenty of evidence to back this up that a lot of voters all around the world say that social media has helped them feel like they are more engaged in politics. They're more likely to understand where their political leaders are coming from. We did a poll of Ipsos Mori in 2015 that showed that a decent chance, about 30 Five or 39 percent or something like that of people said they were more likely to vote if they had been on social media to watch or listen to their respective political parties and candidates. And so it's possible, actually, that social media does actually help increase turnout because people feel a bit more engaged and a bit closer to politics. But, but you can have all of those benefits and still think, as I do, that overall the negatives outweigh them. 
Okay, that's a good point at which to end this first half of the programme. Just to remind you, you're listening to a podcast edition of The Real Story from the BBC World Service. This week, we're asking if social media is killing elections. Each week, we tackle a different topic, and you can download the programme every Friday. I encourage you to subscribe so you won't miss an edition. And there are also many other BBC World Service podcasts to choose from. You could try Witness, our history series told by the people who were there. First-hand accounts of some of the most important events which have helped to shape our lives and the places we live. There are five podcasts a week and an incredible archive to delve into. And please let us know what you think of this podcast from The Real Story or any ideas for topics you'd like us to look into. You can email us at our new email address, therealstory@bbc.co.uk. But now, let's get back to this edition of The Real Story with me, Celia Hatton, looking at social media's role in election campaigns. We're joined by Jamie Bartlett. He's a technology author and documentary maker. His latest book is called The People vs. Tech. Samantha Bradshaw, she's a researcher at the Oxford Internet Institute. And Nick Cheeseman, he's a professor of democracy and international development at the University of Birmingham and the author of Democracy in Africa and How to Rig an Election. Well, we've explored the threat posed by social media on elections. We've also taken in some of the positive effects of those platforms. But now let's take a look at some of the solutions. Let's start with India. It's in the middle of its parliamentary election. The election commission there has been working closely with social media companies to find a way to limit the spread of political misinformation online. For example, WhatsApp introduced a limit on the number of forwarded messages. Facebook has hired a group of Indian journalists to fact-check posts on its platform. This is Kashik Lair. He's Facebook's engineering manager for civic integrity in India. In particular cases where we see that misinformation violates our community standards and essentially coordinates harm. A good example of this, just to anchor the conversation, is misinformation that misleads people about the process of how to vote or the logistics of when to vote. That aspect of misinformation is particularly dangerous. And so as a result, we actually do remove it from our platform. Just this week, Twitter added an option for users in countries that are undergoing elections to report tweets they believe are trying to mislead voters. Starting with India, users can flag up false information about the voting day or how to vote. That's going to be extended to the European Union for its upcoming elections too and then to other countries. Well, let's turn to our guests on this. Well, clearly, platforms like Twitter and Facebook are responding to pressure to clean up problems during election campaigns. But is this the best way to solve this problem? Samantha Bradshaw, what do you think? I think the platform response is an important component to solving this problem, but it's not the only response that we need. So the platforms, they govern what activity happens on them, either through their terms of service agreements or even the way that their technology is structured and delivers information to users or even their business models. All of these things serve to create this environment where disinformation is going viral and it's spreading like wildfire, especially in and around election times. The platforms have done various things to combat these problems, whether it be tweaking their algorithms to demote certain kinds of information that might have been fact-checked, maybe information that hasn't actually been opened and read by someone, but just forwarded on. That, that's another form of information that gets demoted in the algorithms. As you've mentioned, Facebook has uh, launched multiple fact-checking initiatives with partners around the world. There's been other 
other media literacy program investments made by various platforms. So they're doing all kinds of things to try to rein in this problem of disinformation and fake news. But I don't think what the platforms are doing is the only solution to this problem because disinformation is still very much a human problem. The narratives that we're seeing being spread that especially are based on hate speech, all of these things have existed before the internet and it will require a response that comes from everyday citizens because, you know, democracy is hard work. It's something that we have to, as citizens, put effort into to fact check, to develop robust opinions about politics and then make informed decisions when we go out to vote. There's also a government component to this, especially where the platforms have failed in their responses thus far. Are they actually doing enough? Are they doing it in a way that's transparent and that's accountable to its users? That's where government needs to step in and provide some regulatory guidance. Okay, well, Samantha, but... can I just ask, what evidence is there that literacy programs, you know, because the, the platforms do this a lot, they, they talk about, well, it's all about digital literacy, media literacy, we need to train people to spot disinformation better. I don't ever see much evidence that any of it actually works. I agree with you. I think there isn't a lot of research yet on the impact that these new literacy programs have actually had in combating disinformation, but I don't want to discount them as part of the overall solution to the problem because I do think we need to update media literacy programs for the digital age, not just for young people, but for old people, because we do know that older generations are also likely to share disinformation and fake news more so than their younger counterparts. Jamie Bartlett, let's turn the spotlight back onto you. I know you said in the first half of the program that you didn't think that we really should be pacing blame onto anyone in particular for, for the problem caused by social media. But where mm. do you think the solution lies? If it doesn't lie with voter education programs, who has the responsibility to oh, fix the problems? Yeah, yeah. As soon as you put the blame onto the social media platforms and you say, well, you need to do X, Y and Z and you should do more and you should tweak your algorithms, you're basically still giving them more control and power over how information is put out and, and, and seen and understood in elections. And I mean, and that even in itself is a problem because it's very hard for citizens to actually figure out why they get the information they do and how. And so the, the more that we seem to sort of push this onto the platforms to deal with, the more we might inadvertently end up giving them more power over our elections in ways we don't really understand I mean, it's been suggested that Google, if it wished to, and there's no evidence that it ever would, of course, but if it wished to, it could change its search results in such a way that it could determine the outcome of something like one in four elections around the world. And that's terrifying to me. So if, if anyone's to take the blame and the responsibility, I'm afraid I think it's governments on this occasion, because the laws that are in place to govern how elections function have just not kept pace. They haven't changed for a very long time. We've still got laws that are all sort of geared towards television adverts or billboard adverts and not this kind of highly partisan, micro-targeted content. The best thing I can think of, and, and by the way, I'm, I'm a real cynic about this, so I'm not sure whether any of this actually works, because it's possible that social media and elections as we understand them are just incompatible. But the best that I can think of is that we try to update these laws. So you would have, for example, a register of all adverts that are shown to all people, no matter how many they are and how micro-targeted they are, as a sort of public database that everyone can look at so we can see what everybody else is seeing. You know what? 
that's a pretty simple thing to do. And we still haven't done it in most countries. Well, I, I know that's an initiative that's been announced in Canada. And we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But Nick Cheeson, I'd like to hear for, from you on this. Do you think responsibility lies with governments, really? You do a lot of work in Africa. Can you cite a country in Africa that you think is really strong enough to take on large social media platforms? Or, or do we do really need a, an international agreement? Well, I think, you know, what we need to do is break the world down a little bit. And we're talking a little bit at the minute as if it's the same problem everywhere with the same solution. Yet we've got countries at very different levels of uh, technological development and, of course, with very different governments. And one of the biggest worries in Africa is not that, you know, social media will spread false information and the government should regulate it more, but that the government is censoring information. And the biggest fear of most of the people we talk to is that greater government regulation will essentially lead to greater censorship and basically a tilting of the social media landscape in favour of those already in power. You know, we know, for example, that governments like those in Uganda have a nasty habit of turning the internet off at certain times around elections. We know historically from looking at the way that the media has been tamed that there's pressure on journalists to spike stories that's critical of the government. So I think one of the great problems is that actually a lot of the countries we're talking about with really controversial elections have even not consolidated democracy or they have relatively weak legal frameworks that are prone to manipulation by the ruling party and one of the messages from the civil society groups and the opposition parties who tell us they're worried about whatsapp is that whatever you do don't think the solution is the government because the more the government gets power the more the government exerts control over these things rather than creates a level playing field so i think certainly from the sorts of countries that i work in you know there's a real resistance to the idea that the solution is more government regulation and there's a real hope that some of those other mechanisms are going to bear fruit, although I completely agree with what's been said already about the fact that we simply don't have a lot of evidence that they're working. Hang on a minute, though. I'm not suggesting that the governments should have more control to regulate the sorts of information that's out there or should be able to say, well, that's disinformation, that's fake news, we're going to ban that. That's a, that would be disastrous, I mean, especially in the countries that you specialise in, Nick, like you say. I'm talking more about where it's possible to update election law according to certain principles about transparency and openness that all parties could kind of sign up to to say what well, you know if they're willing to to say that election law that we have at the moment is out of date and we can update it so that it has more sort of integrity and can command people's trust more that to me is where we should be looking to focus our energies on and, and, and not about sort of information that government should be able to control to make sure people read the right thing because I, I agree I think that would be terrible I mean that would be terrible anywhere that would be terrible in the UK as well Is there a fear that too much will be removed from social media if platforms start self-censoring. For example, going back to the Canada example, Canada recently placed legal limits on political advertising during election campaigns, but then Google responded by banning all political advertising from its platforms in Canada, and that includes YouTube. Is there a fear that, maybe just within the Canada example, is there a fear that too much will be wiped from the internet? So I think Google's decision to remove all political ads is something that we're going to see other platforms do as well, and especially smaller platforms 
platforms that might not have the capacity or resources to be able to tweak their technical code in time to create this database that would uh, track and update all of the political ads being purchased and delivered to users. It's actually quite a big engineering feat and would take a lot of time considering Canada's elections are in October this year. We might see the markets for political advertisements really center around Facebook and Twitter and the big monopoly platforms that have the capacity to to do this. Going back to whether or not what social media platforms do and giving them more power to control the flows of information, whether or not that will limit the kinds of information that people see. A good example of this is Germany's law, the Net DG law. When that came into effect early 2017, someone from the AFD posted a horribly racist comment on Facebook, and that got taken down because according to Net DG, there are certain kinds of speech that need to be removed from Facebook within 24 hours, or else Facebook faces an enormous fine. So this horribly racist comment, it got immediately taken down. But then so did all of the other political discussion around this comment that called out this person for being racist, all of the coverage that was criticizing this kind of hate speech online that all got taken down. And all of a sudden you lose the vibrancy that we get in the digital public sphere, which is this discussion and this debate around particularly tough issues. And if I could just chip in there for a second, I think that's exactly one of the things that I worry about in less democratic context, because you can write a really good piece of legislation that looks like it's going to do a good job. But if it's put in place by a government that people assume to be biased and partisan, if the rule of law is not enforced equally, if the police are politically biased, then a lot of content providers and others might decide not to run, for example, opposition adverts, because that's going to be made more salient by the fact that there's going to be a database and they know the government doesn't like people who run opposition adverts. So the effect of this on self-censorship and the effect of this on creating more information through which the government, should it want to, could actually go after people who are running opposition adverts. In a lot of the places in which I work, that might actually have quite a negative effect on the flow of information and again, balancing in, f- in favour of the ruling party. So I think one of the things we have to be careful of here is that there's no perfect legislation that we could draw up that would not be able to be manipulated by an authoritarian ruling party. And that's why I think a lot of civil society groups in Africa are really resistant to the idea that regulation is the way to go. All right, well, let's move beyond talk of regulation. What about election campaigns themselves? Do they just need to become smarter about tackling misinformation online? Let's take a minute and hear from one campaigner who played a role in the 2018 midterm elections in the U.S. last year. Those were the first since the Russia-influenced 2016 presidential election. Lisa Kaplan now works for the technology and security firm Guidehouse. But last year, she was the digital director for the election campaign for Senator Angus King. He ran and eventually won a seat as an independent candidate for the U.S. Senate. I think that we were definitely on high alert, but what we learned from 2016 is just how easy something like this is to do. And so we figured it was better to be prepared than it would be to get caught flat-footed. What kind of social media attacks were launched against your candidate? 
We did see a lot of inauthentic and coordinated behavior. So what I mean by that is we would see content that would be spread and amplified through a series of bot networks that was designed to increase the reach of the content itself. And so in taking a step back, the way we approached it was we always focused on disinformation as there could be an actor trying to achieve a goal of making somebody believe something that isn't true. The social media platforms have added a lot of transparency features that individuals can use to try to understand where the information is coming from. So, for example, now on Facebook pages, you can actually see where the account administrators are located. And that provided us great insight into where the the different content may be originating. So it sounds like you were worried about coordinated campaigns targeting your candidate. It doesn't really sound like you were worried about the odd voter posting something that was, yes, incorrect, but not necessarily malicious. Is that fair to say? I think that is fair to say because we also want to protect free speech. And so everybody is entitled to their own opinion in a democratic society. What we did was we would look at things like is a piece of content being amplified by a bot network with the probable goal of trying to change somebody's mind or trying to influence a decision that somebody is going to make when they walk into a voting booth or when they're deciding whether or not they should vote at all. And this is what we were looking for. And yes, we were focused on an election, but it's also much broader than that. And we're seeing that still today in the sense that there are bad actors out there that are trying to manipulate the data set that an individual has on a whole variety of decisions that they could potentially make. Can you take us through some of the specific steps that you took to counter some of the problems? First, what we did was we protected our infrastructure. So we implemented a lot of internal policies and we built a culture of cybersecurity. We would do things like force two-factor authentication on not only our campaign accounts, but also our personal accounts as well. We also created a sort of honeypot. So what we did was we revived these old intern accounts that used to work with us, and we would send false information to them. The reason why is because if there ever were a hack or an attempt to spread this information, we would then be able to buy ourselves time and be able to say, this part is true, this part isn't true, while all the while we knew the information that we needed to make decisions on a day-to-day in the office. That was Lisa Kaplan. Uh, Jamie Bartlett, what do you think? Is this the new normal for campaign workers? Instead of simply knocking on doors and, and handing out written information, they're going to have to be planting false information into fake accounts and things? Wow. I mean, that's really complicated, isn't it? But generally speaking, yeah, I think it is the sort of thing that we're going to get used to now that campaigns will will not only try to use some of these techniques themselves, they'll try to catch their opponents using them unfairly and then report on them. But I mean, what I think we're going to need is some kind of bot spotter or she mentioned inauthentic and coordinated content um th- th- uh, some organization that sits above political parties and, and i know samantha's institute the oxford internet institute does some of this stuff already that during elections will be able to say well we think we found some of this inauthentic content we think there's some form of interference here or efforts 
you the public can still decide but this is what our view on you know what you can trust and how much the information you see is but is trustworthy and believe and believable and and i think most countries will will have to incorporate this into their election monitoring systems but journalists generally need to be quite responsible too because what i often see is journalists reporting on russian interference or other forms of international interference without really saying if it mattered or not or whether it was significant or whether it changed anybody's mind it, the sheer existence of it can be enough to knock people's confidence in an election so if i were working in russian intelligence i would pretend to be interfering in a midterm election and ensure that i was caught so journalists would report on it and everybody would lose faith in the process and we know that really is what the the russian aim has been during elections it's not so much to swing it one way or another but it's to make everybody unsure and doubt whether they can trust the result at all so there's going to be a role for journalists to make sure they're not doing the work of international interferers for them Samantha Bradshaw, I wonder if you can weigh in here, uh, maybe speak about your institute's work with the bot spotter. Yeah, so what our institute does, what Jamie was talking about, we have an elections observatory and we in real time track what people are sharing on social media, whether that be Facebook, Twitter, or WhatsApp. We collect all the kinds of different URLs, memes that people are sharing and evaluate the kinds of content to see how much of it is coming from professional news sources, how much of it is what we call junk news, which as I mentioned before is kind of catch all term that we use to describe a variety of low quality information. We look at the kinds of memes that are being passed around for different kinds of narratives around um, populism, around white supremacy. Um, And we put these in little data memos or little snippets that we usually release to the public before an election. So that's one of the things that we've been working on to try to build a little bit more an empirical base around what is actually happening on social media online, because there is a lot of narratives in the media around this challenge that often, you know, they're very, very negative and they tend to be a little bit hyperbolic in terms of the end of the world is coming because of social media. So these kind of provide a little bit of an empirical grounding to the actual context of what we're seeing. Um, But I'd like to comment on the clip before, because I think what is important about the new normal is the cybersecurity element of this. And it's a very important part of the response. And I think something that political parties haven't made enough of an investment into in the past, and they still aren't doing so today. And I think when we're talking cybersecurity, we also need to add in that there's a major risk around the world with the electronic technology that's used to run elections, right? An increasing proportion of elections either use technology in terms of biometric registration or verification of voters. They may use technology in the way that they count votes. They may even use electronic voting machines. And we've yet to find really any of these systems that have been impervious to researchers trying to hack into them. So there's a really fundamental question about whether or not our elections are are secure. And if we move away from context where, of course, you know, 
protecting digital information is perhaps developed more to places where digital technology is newer. Even in those contexts, we see really, really big sort of worrying, sort of gaping holes in the technological security of elections. So I think this risk that there will be accusations, whether or not they're true, that outside players have come in and interfered in elections um, and that that delegitimizes the process is a really present one. And it's one that in many countries we've simply not been quick enough to respond to. I think the other people who have been relatively slow to respond or to be fair to them have found it really difficult to respond are the international election observation groups themselves. And relatively few international observation missions are actually monitoring social media effectively because they simply don't have the capacity. Of course, with WhatsApp, it's encrypted, so they can't. With things like Twitter, it will often be written in vernacular languages, so it's not possible for them to track something in seven or eight different languages in a multi-ethnic country like Nigeria or Kenya. And so actually, the way that we're observing elections is often through the mainstream traditional media and not really through social media. So if we think that social media is where the action is, we're actually missing a massive part of the picture. We're moving towards the end of this episode of The Real Story, but let's just tackle one more question. If I can get a brief answer from each one of you. We, we started this program by looking back at elections from 20 years ago and how things have changed now. I want to try to rate your optimism for the future. What do you think elections are going to look like 10 or, or 20 years from now? Jamie Bartlett, can we start with you? Wow. Well, on the current trajectory, um, every single person in an uh, advanced democracy will be receiving a completely unique, tailored, dynamic message that will be derived from way more data sets than we have now. It will include your dietary data set. It will include your YouTube viewing habits when you were a teenager. And it will be far more about algorithms that you won't really understand because they'll be increasingly complicated. So you will open your fridge one day and receive an advert from a candidate that's based on the things that you've said that day and the things that you've eaten over the last week and so on. (laughs) Okay, that's a scary thought. (laughs) This is a scary thought, but it's no more ludicrous than had I tried to explain what's happening now to somebody 20 years ago. Samantha Bradshaw, what do you think? What are elections going to look like 10 or 20 years from now? I agree with Jamie. I'm increasingly worried by the future of our elections, the future integrity of our democracy, especially in an age of hyper-personalization and algorithms that are increasingly being improved by AI and other forms of machine learning in ways that even the developers don't even necessarily understand how they're working and making decisions. Any more optimism from you, Nick Cheeseman? Well, I agree with my colleagues here. I mean, we wrote the book, How to Rig an Election, explicitly to flag exactly this kind of nightmare scenario. But I'll be a bit more optimistic for the sake of balance on this panel. <laughs> I think it's also true, and this has really come out in our conversations in Nigeria. You know, people say to us, you can win an election by going to the market and pressing hands and meeting people and being brilliant and not being on WhatsApp. You can't win an election by being on WhatsApp and not being in people's communities. And I think at a lot of local contexts, at local elections, the actual charisma of the candidate being on the ground, being seen to be one of the people is still significant. If you have a WhatsApp presence, but no real life presence, you cannot win an election, at least at the local level. And I think that keeps things rooted in a much more physical, personal sense. So I agree that the kind of idea that the fridge determines your vote is terrifying. But I also think that there's an element of personal politics that is going to remain. And that's where candidates can really be evaluated by their communities. 
Well, that's it. A warm thank you to each of my guests. Jamie Bartlett, he's a technology author and documentary maker. His latest book is called The People vs. Tech. Samantha Bradshaw, a researcher at the Oxford Internet Institute. And Nick Cheeseman, a professor of democracy and international development at the University of Birmingham and the author of Democracy in Africa and How to Rig an Election. From me, Celia Hatton, and the rest of the team from The Real Story, thanks for listening.